If you do everything by the protocol, then the hospital hits all of those right numbers, all of those right checkboxes, so they get paid the most amount of money they can get paid. Today I sit down with Dr. Kat Lindley, a family physician and president of the Texas branch of the American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons. She was one of the very few doctors using repurposed medications to treat COVID-19 patients early in the pandemic. What WHO would like to accomplish is something they call One Health, One World. They would like to have global control over any future pandemics that happen. Born in the former Yugoslavia, she fled the communist country a day before its civil war broke out. Now in America, she says she sees echoes of the same totalitarianism. They start telling, well, if you do this, I'll give you a little bit of that. Until it gets to the point that you just can't do anything unless they give you permission. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kjellek. Kat Lindley, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Well, doc, I'll say Dr. Lindley. Um, you've been practicing medicine here in the U.S. for quite some time in Texas. You originally actually immigrated from the former Yugoslavia. And I just want to find out a little bit about your path to getting here. So I grew up in Yugoslavia and uh, I lived there until I was 18 years old. It was, you know, the time when you have to decide what do you want to do, what type of life you want to have as an adult. And, but there were rumblings of things happening. Uh, there were attacks uh, in northern part of Croatia. We were still Yugoslavia at that time. And um, my family kind of got worried and they decided for me to go to Italy. So they found me a job as a nanny. And I actually left one day before the war started in uh, Yugoslavia with one suitcase to my name. I got on the ferry to uh, Italy. I didn't really know the language, but I, I, I understood some of it because I'm from Dalmatia and we have a, our dialect is very similar to the Italian. So I left uh, as 18-year-old, really child, because I was very much sheltered at the time, and started a new life. I didn't realize that's going to be, you know, completely different life. Well, first of all, what an amazing place to grow up on the Dalmatian coast. I can hardly imagine. Uh, it must have been hard to leave. But I mean, you basically, you escaped an incredibly destructive genocidal war one day by one day. It was hard because I actually, I ended up living with a wonderful family. And uh, after Split was attacked, probably for about six, seven months, I couldn't reach out to them because the lines were cut off. Uh, and mainly we would get the news, uh, you know, from Rai television. And you had these boats from people from Albania coming over, from all over escaping. Uh, and then very kind of sporadically you would hear something. But at the time uh, when Split was attacked, they, were doing, they had snipers shooting. And it was very difficult because my mom's sister lived in Serbia. My brother-in-law was from Bosnia. So we are all kind of interconnected. If anyone knows like, uh, you know, history of Yugoslavia, this was like, it's five republics with two provinces. That's how Tito kept everyone together. So when the war started, this was truly a civil war because we, I had cousins in Serbia, cousins in Bosnia and Croatia. So it was really difficult on all of us. This history that you had those 18 years um, in the former Yugoslavia um, was very important to our discussion. And we're going to bring that up in a moment. But now let's, let's talk about your medical practice and you know, how you, you know, basically came into, to, into doing that. So people always ask me, um, when did you decide to be a doctor? 
I didn't. What happened is when I came to the States, I actually worked as a nanny for two ophthalmologists, and I was going through undergrad in Florida Atlantic University. And they said to me one day, uh, one of the eye surgeons said to me, why don't you go to medical school? Because I was really a good student, and I kind of thought about it for a second. I said, yeah, why don't I? And I applied to medical school and, and decided to become a physician. But that's important because in countries like communist countries like Yugoslavia and others, you don't dream. You don't have this you know, thought from when you're a child, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be that. You're kind of tracked into the life you're going to have. So um, when I came to the States, this country was so very important to me. And I really, the idea of freedom, the thing that you can become whoever you want to be if you work really hard, it's one of the probably biggest treasures that we have as a country because you don't have that in other places. Let's discuss your kind of philosophy of medicine and what your, what your practice is. So I'm an osteopathic family physician. In osteopathic medicine, one thing we are taught right away is uh, that person is more than just a body. You treat body, mind, and spirit. So when I started my medical education, it was kind of the whole ideology was a little bit different from our allopathic partners. You know, our, our schooling is exactly the same. We go through the same residences and things like that. But we look at a person, an individual, a little bit differently. So I worked in private practice for a while. I actually even worked for a hospital system as a medical director. And I got a little bit disillusioned by it. Because with uh, electronic medical records, CMS, Medicare, there's so many rules, you know, CPT codes. You have to, you, you start losing the essence of who you are as a physician because you have to chart all day long. You have 10, 15 minutes with a patient. Everyone kind of becomes a number, not because you want them to, but it's just kind of, it becomes a reality. So I decided to step out of that system and I actually practice independently. I do direct primary care and it's affordable membership fee. It's just me and a patient. There's no middleman. Uh, they can call me, text me 24-7. When I travel, I'm accessible. Uh, if they need to come to my office, they come to the office. But it's really just that one-on-one -on -one relationship and there's nothing in between us. Well, first of all, that makes me think of, you know, it makes me think of how medicine is kind of supposed to be, and I'm sure you would yes. agree with that. Um, but it also made, makes me think about, you know, what, what is the reality of medicine in our society today? Because what you're doing is very atypical. It is. And uh, I think one of the reasons we got caught in this mistrust of medicine currently that we are after the pandemic and everything that's happened is because physicians have lost their autonomy. Uh, for the past 10, 15 years, big hospital systems are acquiring physicians' practices, big specialty practices, and you practice what I call corporate practice of medicine. So when you are in a system, whichever the system is, you kind of have to uh, get the labs from the hospital that you work at or whoever they contract with. You send your patients to the specialist that they have a contract with. You kind of live within that network and you get incentivized or you can lose some money, some incentives if you don't do certain things. So you kind of get dictated this way of medicine. And uh, that also happens in the hospital. When someone comes in with pneumonia or a heart issue that we think it could be a possibly heart attack, 
there's a protocol that gets initiated the moment patient enters the doors. Because if you do everything by the protocol, then the hospital hits all of those right numbers, all of those right check boxes, so they get paid the most amount of money they can get paid. Hmm. So basically you're saying in this model, it's not just sort of the patient's care, but also the, 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 the financial incentives becomes very significant. Exactly. Why is it more significant in that model than in, say, the, the, the primary care individual, independent physician, one-on-one -on -one to a patient? How is, why is it so different? Because, for, so let's take pneumonia, for example. If someone comes into the hospital with pneumonia, they're going to get uh, blood cultures, certain labs, and medications right away, IV antibiotics or something like that. And then they're going to wait for the cultures to come back to see if they did the right thing. They might readjust the medications and things like that. I don't look at any of that. I look at the patient first. And then based on the exam, history, and other things, I'll decide what the patient has. I might not order all the, all the labs that the protocol would ask me to order. I would just order what I think is significant. Hmm. By doing that, you kind of individualize the medi medicine approach. And especially for patients who have high deductibles or don't have insurance, you actually save them money. Because you're trying to use your thinking cap. You know, you don't just say, well, I have to do this, 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 and that. You just say, well, I, this is what I have, and this is what I need, and that's what you go with. And, you know, I think of the Hippocratic Oath right, which is do no harm. Mm -hmm. It seems to me in this model of medicine like this, doctor-patient relationship is incredibly important. Even in this model of medicine, and this, you know, many and other guests that I've had on the show have, have spoken to this, that this, just like you said, that the sort of patient becomes more of a number or, and that these larger structures who, which are incentivized by things other than necessarily the, the best outcome for the patient are, directly or indirectly influencing your decision making. So I guess my question is, when the pandemic hit, you know, what, what happened with you? I was actually in that period when I was transi transitioning to my new practice. So I, was, I had my practice and it was going well, but I was working in urgent care to supplement the income because my practice was still growing. And um, in urgent care, I actually remember one of my first uh, COVID patients came in and she was complaining of uh, congestion. She said it wasn't a big deal, but her O2 saturation level was very low, which was not normal for someone who was speaking you know, so well and had no issues. So I ended up sending her to the hospital and she actually passed away three days later. But after that, the system closed and we were told not to see anyone. So I was getting paid being in urgent care. And if anyone came with symptoms that we consider COVID, we had to actually send them to the um, hospital to hmm. be triaged through the hospital, be seen and then uh, taken care of, which didn't make sense because I'm considered frontline. Frontline is supposed to figure out what's going on and do the best we can. We accept that risk. If I didn't want to do it, I would not have worked. But so we end up taking care of just like minor emergencies that had nothing to do with COVID, but anything that was COVID related would go to the hospital. And that's kind of what made me look at this through different eyes. Hmm. Because my practice, in my, you know, I just, if whoever came in, I just took care of them, treated them, they did fine, 
you know, I saw them. And if there was a compelling them, reason to go to the hospital, that you would send yes, them definitely. as you did. Yeah, but I yeah. saw them in person. If I had to see them, you know, uh, at the time we were all told to wear masks and stuff like that. Sure, that wasn't a problem. Uh, but uh, the fact that we were told not to see the patients in person was very alarming to most of us. It just didn't make sense. And for the benefit of our audience, so you were in this urgent care uh, you had this urgent care practice associated with the hospital, and then you also had your private practice, which then you transitioned to, yes. which we had this different, different I was approach. doing like 1099 type of work with uh, uh, urgent care so I can supplement my income while I'm growing my own private practice. I see. Okay. And you decided to take a bit of a different approach pretty quickly from what I understand. Because literature was starting to come out saying that certain medications work, but even if there's, even if we didn't know anything about the medications that you know that no one talks about, as a physician, if someone comes in with cough or inflammation or shortness of breath, there are other things we can try. You know, if you if you are bleeding and it's a small wound, you put a little bandaid. But if you're bleeding a lot, you suture that wound. There are things we can try, even if you don't know exactly what's going to end up working. So the fact that we were told not to try anything, but to send people to the hospital didn't make sense. And a lot of private practices just closed their doors. And uh, until they figure out how to use the telemedicine component, didn't really even do much. So what did you do? I just did my job. In my private practice, I saw everyone. I took care of them, phone calls. They came to my office if needed. And in the other job that, that I was supplementing, I did what the administration told me to do. So, and how many COVID patients did you come across in your private practice? Um, I live in a small town, so I, 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 I'm not sure how many I exactly I had. Maybe hundreds, two hundreds, I don't know. That was kind of initially, you know, I pretty much just did my job. And then eventually I got a little bit more... Um, I don't want to say daring, but maybe braver, and put myself on FLCCC list and AAPS online list, and then people started calling me from all over Texas and stuff like that. Well, right, and I just I want to also add, actually, you're just reminding me that you're you're also pretty active in the physicians community. You know, you're you're a small town doctor, sure, but you're actually, you know, you you have a lot of contacts and you work work with a lot of people, and I think you even head up like one of the Texas. Um, Physicians associations, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I guess, what were you hearing from other people? Um, I was lucky enough, you know, to really know Peter McCullough and Ryan Cole before this. So it was kind of easy to hear what they're doing and what's happening. And even before COVID, I did a lot of legislative work in uh, DC because I always realized uh, the way the medicine was going, there was a short track to try to achieve socialized type of medicine. Whether you call it Obamacare or Medicare for All or Bernie Sanders, whichever plan he had. Those type of things don't work because healthcare is a bureaucracy. You have a lot of people behind the scenes making rules and making decisions that have nothing to do with patient care. So when COVID hit, pretty much, you know, we just started talking to each other. And we would say, I tried this, what did you try? What do you do when you have this? It was kind of almost you know, learning as you go until we all figure out together how to come up with the different protocols. And then 
once you start treating it, it wasn't a big deal. All of, I, none of my patients, thank goodness, passed away. And I only had, I believe, two that end up in a hospital, but mainly because they didn't start medication right away. Well, so this is actually quite interesting because you were, so you had a network before COVID of people that were, let's say, suspicious of the socialized medicine model. Is that right? And you were actually working to do what? So before COVID, um, during uh, Trump administration, I think one of the things that his administration liked was the free market type of medicine, which is what direct primary care and direct specialty care is. We, uh, I, like I said, I take on, it's a membership fee and patient has 24 seven access to me. We also have network of uh, labs that are affordable, radiology that's affordable, and there is a surgery center of Oklahoma you can go online, they do surgeries for cash. You drop, there's a drop down box, you choose which surgery you're gonna have, it tells you exactly how much it's gonna cost. So I think what that administration figured out that you can have Medicare, Medicaid for people who need it, but when it comes to younger individuals and stuff like that, free market will work. Hmm. You can get blood work for $3, uh, $4, x-rays for 25 to $40. Hmm. CAT scan, 150 to 250 MRI, $400. And even with people who have insurance, some of them actually end up paying cash because their deductible is too high. So, you know, these numbers, you know, just for, like, for comparison in the, in the sort of the socialized system are what, like, how much larger? Well, it's really interesting because the hospital systems, they just kind of arbitrarily decide what they're going to, um, what they're going to bill. Because no matter how, what they build, insurance is just going to give them this much. So let's say they decide to build $1,000 for an MRI. The insurance can say, okay, we'll pay you $750 or whatever. But then what happens once the insurance says how much they're going to pay for them, then they end up charging people who don't have insurance that same amount, $750. Hmm. But in reality, on a free market, that's something you can get for $350, $400, $450, depending where you go. People don't realize that you can negotiate. Even at a hospital, if you don't have insurance and they, you end up with this huge bill, you can go back and negotiate because they want to get paid. They don't really want to not get paid at all. No, it's fascinating. I mean, so I, you know, I'm Canadian, as many of our viewers know, and I you know, come from a country where it was just a given that, that uh, what you would call socialized medicine is the greater good and this is how things should be. And what are those Americans across the border doing, you know? So it's, so it's interesting to hear about this. Well, one of the reasons I always hated the idea of socialized medicine is because if you need a knee replacement or if you need um, something that's not urgent, depending what type of demand they have, you might have to wait months to get on the list to have a surgery. Here in the United States, if you have insurance or if you go through the surgical center of, of Oklahoma, you can have this done when you need it. You don't have to wait months for it. And I think with especially American market, the supply and demand, that is going to cause such an imbalance. And there is no way of uh, really getting care that you need appropriately if you have someone behind the scenes deciding if you need it. And that's why I like my model, because it's me and the patient. We decide what's best for them. We don't have this third party who tells us, you can have this, but you cannot have that. And so, and how does this, in your view, account for the people that maybe just can't afford some of these 
life-saving procedures because this is this is what's always of course brought up right we want to be fa you want to be fair to to everyone well that's why we do have the medicaid for people who cannot uh, afford insurance so you have medicare for elderly and stuff like that but even then you have to be very careful how it's administered because there's a lot of money wasted in those programs okay let's let's jump back to the pandemic so you signed yourself up now you're working with these different groups to treat to do early treatment for mm -hmm. COVID and so forth. So, you know, so what happened to you? What happened to your practice? My practice just stayed, you know, if anything actually got larger. And I, I, when the pandemic hit, I always realized this was something that was different this time around was this was global. Every country did exactly the same thing. One president would say something, another leader would say exactly the same thing, build back better, right? They all had the same message. That never made sense. So when I decided to get involved, I reached out to different places, especially UK and Australia, to see what's happening there, what they're doing, what things they're struggling with. And I think we're kind of all doing the same circles. You know, now there's the talk of digital passports that's been going on in UK, Canada is, is uh, trying to introduce it. Some states here actually silently actually have the digital passport already in their system, but they just haven't turned it on. So there's a, this global no, response. In which passport you're talking about specifically? Like, I'm vaccine, like vaccine, pass vaccine passport. Vaccine yeah, passports, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, because I think vaccine passport is going to lead to all those social um, credit scores and different things like that. So it was very important for me to connect with physicians and other groups around the world. I actually, I, I was on the steering committee of World Council for Health for a little while because I felt that this has to be, we have to respond back globally, not only in our own little communities. Now let's go back to your upbringing, you know, in a communist country, in the former Yugoslavia. You know, this has informed your viewpoint around all these things. And I want you to tell me about that. So. I saw a pandemic through two eyes. One was the doctor. And when we came to that point that they told us pretty much to stand back, tell patients to go to the ER if they can't breathe and stuff like that, that didn't make sense to me. And then I started seeing it through different eyes. And that was the eyes of someone who grew up in communism. What I started recognizing was fear. You know, watching TV from China, from New York, uh, the numbers, you know, how many died, all those things were just kind of staring at us. And uh, then they said, you have to stay home. Everything was closed. School was closed. That never made sense. Um, churches were closed. Hmm. Everything was closed. Only essential workers could go out. Which was kind of weird because I've, I've always, you know, I've never stayed home because I was considered an essential worker. But it was really weird, like this virus just like shut down the whole world. So I started recognizing the fear, isolation, and then we started negotiating. If you are six feet apart, you can stay in line. You can go by, you know, to the store or whatever. And then elderly, I remember some stores would be open early so elderly can come. And then they said, if you wear a mask, uh, you can start doing more things and eventually came to this newer technology, like if you get vaccinated, you can travel, you can go see your loved ones and things like that. And I recognize that as the tactics of totalitarianism. That's really what happens. 
the state makes you fear something really bad, and then they isolate you so you cannot discuss what's going on, and then they start telling you, well, if you do this, I'll give you a little bit of that, until it gets to the point that you just can't do anything unless they give you permission. So what strikes me by what you're saying is this, there seems to be this implicit assumption that it's up to the government to decide how much right you have to do yes. whatever it is, which you know is the upside down version of what it's supposed to be here, at least or in free countries. Yeah, and that was, it was very hard for me to um, recognize that. In a sense, once I recognized it, it really undermined my belief in the United States. Uh, in, in what the United States stands for, because I always felt, and I live in Texas, even Texas, we had our lockdown. Luckily, it didn't last long. Our governor realized that, you know, Texans will not put up with it for too much longer. But this willingness to surrender it all, to feel this false sense of security, which, you know, if anyone has a child, when your kids has RSV or a cold or a flu, you all know it just spreads, you know, everyone gets it and we all get better and we're all fine. So to consider that like locking us down is going to somehow lock this virus, like what is the virus going to do? Just vanish, you know, poof, it's gone. It's, it's just like the whole idea of it never made sense. But the fact that we also willingly gave up our freedom to feel little safe, it kind of made me... Um, sad. Like, I didn't think Americans would do that. Do you remember, like, a specific moment where this dawned on you? Actually, I always believed, uh, you know, you watch those movies when people uh, are uh, in a different country, something happens to them, and they go to the embassy, and the embassy saves them. So even before COVID, actually, one year before COVID, I was in Croatia with my kids, and uh, I did something that you never should do. I had my passport and everything with me in my bag. And I was keeping track of my boys and wasn't paying attention to my bag and someone took everything out. So I lost my passport, our credit cards, money and whatever. And uh, I called the embassy, we're American citizens, and I called the embassy for help. And they were not very helpful. It, was, it took hoops to actually get the, uh, everything back. And if I wasn't with my family, I don't know how I would have done it. But that was like the first time I kind of started having this, huh, it doesn't work this way. And then when COVID happened, when um, I kind of understood two weeks for a brief moment because of what was going in New York, but when they extended those two weeks, and for me, it was governor from Michigan when she said that you cannot go buy seeds at Walmart. She actually uh, put tape around those seeds. And, and I was like, what does this have to do with COVID? It was all about control. It was all about making people do what they wanted us to do. And that was when I completely knew that this had nothing to do with the illness, the disease it had to do with our government taking control of our lives. You were also quite outspoken about this. Yes, because Americans might not realize this, but for people like me and for people in Cuba and for people all over the world, America is a beacon of hope. It's a place where we were always told you can be whatever you want to be. 
You can be, you know, this person who is born in poverty, but you can become the president, or you can become astronaut. You can do whatever you want or, as long or, as you wish it. Or an osteopathic doctor. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, freedom is the most important thing in the world. If you don't have freedom, do you really have a life? And the fact that we were willing to give it up so easily is just very discouraging. Because if there's no United States of America, is there anything else that you can really look up to to think that... I don't want to sound arrogant, but this is really truly an incredible country with so much to give. When there is a disaster, American people are the first ones to give. To even the people who don't have much, they will give. And um, we really have to think about those things that our forefathers created this republic on. We can't give it up. We have to leave a better future for our kids. And the way we're going, uh, some days I'm not sure we will be able to. You know, you mentioned this kind of negotiation for rights, right, which was one of these red flags that showed you, oh, wait, this, I recognize this yes. from, a, from before. Are there other things that you've noticed of this nature? I think the hardest thing that I've seen is that everyone has kind of, uh, you know, physicians have been obviously blamed for a lot what what has happened in the sense that there's a loss of trust with physicians, but I would say it has happened in every industry. Same is with lawyers. Lawyers really didn't do much, you know. We have few that are doing a hard work of many, but we need all of them to wake up. You know, the, the civil rights, one thing that actually gave me a huge pause was last year when the uh, Department of Homeland Security said if you speak about COVID or uh, elections, you're considered uh, a terrorist. That hit me so hard. It was like, uh, we were actually supposed to go to speak an event a couple days later. It hit me so hard and I have a great imagination. So I'm thinking to myself, we're gonna go to this event, there's gonna be like FBI agents in the audience and I might say something, they think it's bad and I'm gonna end up in jail. You know, I, I, I have a really vivid imagination. But, you know, I kind of went through this cycle of grieving, of being scared and stuff like that. And then I realized it doesn't matter how hard it is. We have to speak the truth. And the fact that, like, I wasn't born free to really say things, you know, when you live in communism and I'm going to die in a country that's going to consider me a terrorist if I say something. It hit me very hard. But the thing that stuck to me is um, our kids deserve the same opportunities we were all given. And if we don't fight for them, they're not going to have them. Often when I speak with people about this, it's just, they'll say, well, you know, I have to do this. It's for the kids. You know, I, 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 I have five. Many, well, that, that's interesting because I'm just thinking of someone else who has five kids who told me very similarly, like, what else would I do? Mm -hmm. Basically, right? It's yeah. like, well, a lot of people have chosen to do very different things or not or, or, or just kind of ignore it or just write it out. Um, you know, you've had this broad network, not just in the US, but in Canada, mm -hmm. across the world, right, of people who are in the mode of challenging this way of dealing with the disease and frankly, this whole outlook, right? So 
what is it that makes these people different? Like what, what, what it's not a, it's, it's, it's a significant group, but it's not the majority of the population. I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure, except that um, someone, uh, I get messages from people I don't know at all. Like they'll send me an email or sometimes they'll send me a note and someone wrote a verse for me. It says, perhaps you were born for such a time like this. Mm. And I thought about it and it's kind of true. I think like for me, at least the life I had before led me to this moment in time to recognize the dangers ahead and uh, the reason that I need to speak out. And for me, it is my children and it is the future I would like for them to have. So I would think that most people who are standing up or saying things are doing it for someone else, not for themselves. Hmm. But surely, surely, there's more people that out there that that also will live for you know are living for others. I guess th this is something I myself am just so curious about mm -hmm. because it's not that necessarily people are incurious. There's just some, some significant other portion of the population that maybe just doesn't see this in societies like communist China, which I'm very familiar with, or the the country my parents came from, communist Poland, the tools of information management or propaganda were very strong, right? And this is something that I've observed here um, as well, and I know you have. And I guess I'm wondering if you see any parallels with what you saw in former Yugoslavia and, and here. I think that institutions, uh, our governments, leaders, everyone has really employed this global psyops, hmm. right? Because uh, the whole thing is safe and effective. You know, that narrative has been broken down so many times, but they're still going with it. The same thing with masks. We have proven so many times that masks don't work. They're still pushing for it. Dr. Walensky said that uh, the CDC is actually going to encourage masks in school. So. People who are afraid, and, and that's the thing that fear initially, some people are still living in that fear. They did a great job. The number of deaths, I don't know if you remember, like even watching Fox News or whichever station you were watching, there was always that ticker on the bottom that kept on saying how many people died in a day, in a week, in a month. That number kept on going up and up and up and up and up. And I think people didn't really realize how many stimuli they had. And then, you know, watching what's happening in New York, in China, the people that were like lying on the streets, they did a great job initially with that fear. And I would say that some people, especially older ones, still have that. And then we did it to our kids, right? We told our kids that they cannot go see their grandparents because they could kill their grandparents. Um, and then we told the children they have to wear a mask. And actually, one of the things that I say all the time the mask in children served a purpose. The purpose was to make those children compliant. Then there were uh, pictures of kids when they're wa walking um, outside, they had to put a hand on the shoulder of the other child so they know they have to keep the distance. That all was done for compliance to make our children, at that young age, they learn these things very easily. So all that was a big psyops and there is still a residual fear left uh, and I think it's dissipating but especially with older generations I still see some of them even in Texas they wear a mask they feel more comfortable um, so 
the same way communist countries did it to their own citizens, our countries have done it to, to us with this uh, pandemic. So another thing you've been writing about or speaking and speaking about is these sort of international structures, the WHO in particular um, is working on, as you describe, you know, further tools of control or facilitating compliance to anyway, but tell me, tell me a little bit about that. So WHO uh, was initially funded by United uh, Nations to be like kind of the health arm of the um, United Nations. And it was initially funded by the countries that were members based on the GDP. But in recent years, they've actually, they're funded by these private partnership uh, companies. So you have Gavi Foundation, Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, Welcome Trust, and you have different countries that still fund them. So with this pandemic, um, there is this connection between all of these groups. And uh, what WHO would like to accomplish is something they call One Health, One World. They would like to have global control over any future pandemics that happen. And there are two venues they're trying to reach that. One is the pandemic treaty that they're kind of negotiating right now. And then that would go to the World Health Assembly in 2024 to be voted on. And then once it's voted, it goes to different countries, state member countries to get ratified. In the United States, you need two thirds of a Senate for pandemic treaty to be ratified. So I'm not too worried about that. I don't think they'll ever be able to get two thirds of the Senate to say yes. You never know. But the other venue is something called international health regulations. Uh, those were established, I believe, initially in 69, but then they were amended in 2005. So that's an international law. And currently, they're working on amendments to that, that they're going to vote um, this May on. And some of those amendments would allow Director General, who is Tedros at this time, to actually have a lot more control on how every country responds. Hmm. So if there is a future pandemic with the amendments that are uh, on the table, it would give him actually tools to, uh, for WHO to come in and actually take over the response of the country to the pandemic, which means that they can tell you what type of medications you can use, which tests, vaccines, or whatever. And obviously that would interfere with, with sovereignty of the nations. And uh, it's something that everyone is really watching and making sure it doesn't pass. So, and what is what are these networks that you're involved in now trying to do with this? So currently I'm, I work with Global COVID Summit Physicians and we do a lot of educational uh, seminars and uh, talks all over the world really. We just came from Sweden where we had a conference and then FLCCC and the other networks. But uh, specifically, you know, we're trying to raise awareness of what's happening with the vaccine injured population because uh, not many physicians will actually treat vaccine injured. And I know you had uh, Brie uh, recently, and I work with Brie and Joel Walskog uh, from uh, REACT19, uh, because what they're finding is when they go see a physician, lots of them will not acknowledge that what has happened has happened because the, of the vaccine. So now they're having to navigate this world um, by themselves. So our goal is to really try to create a network of physicians who will help and make sure that they're taken care of. You actually are, have been advocating for a, a new oath for doctors, right? Yes. 
I thought the Hippocratic Oath is actually pretty good if it was only followed. But mm. um, but what why why is there? Tell me about what it is and why. So I wrote the new Hippocratic Oath, and I called it Oath um, of a Medicus. Medicus means a healer, and. Uh, one of the things that we've lost during this pandemic is the trust. And people don't talk about informed consent enough. Mm -hmm. But if you really think about it, the Achilles heel of the whole program is the informed consent. It was not given because no one knew what's in the vaccine. No one knew what can happen in the vaccine. And even if this was EUA and experimental, you still have to disclose to the best of your knowledge. And according to the documents, they did know lots of things when they were uh, giving the vaccine. So the- Well, the, 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 the companies the knew companies, necessarily, but yes. I, if I recall the package inserts were actually package, blank. They were blank, exactly. Right. So um, the basis of the oath is just restoring the trust and giving a personal pledge to the patient that their wishes and their desires matter above all, and that we would never discriminate, I would never discriminate and physicians against anything, including, you know, we haven't touched on Z, the new Z code, but that new Z code is gonna label people vaccinated or not. And there were even places where you couldn't have transplant surgery because you were not vaccinated. So it's very difficult for me that, you know, that people can, they need an organ to survive, and there are hospitals who would say no to that. That's really con in contradiction to our oath. So that's why I decided to rewrite it. And uh, at the end, I say, it says, I solemnly pledge and, uh, you know, to stand by the oath and, and advocate for the patient. Because that's our job, to advocate for the patient. Well, this is something that just struck me as so, so bizarre because, you know, let's just say, for argument's sake, right, let's say not taking this vaccine was a really bad health decision, right? When people make all sorts of really bad decisions about their health all the time, right? But no one's ever said, sorry, I'm not going to treat you because I don't like what you, you know, your lifestyle or something like that. That just honestly never made sense. It, it you know, even if when patient smokers, right, they come to see you and, and we had to like give them every year, you have to counsel them, you know, that they shouldn't smoke or whatever, but you didn't stop seeing them if they developed cancer because of their smoking. You still saw them, took care of them. You might give them a little bit of a lecture why they should have stopped, you know, whatever, but you took care of them. And this is the, it's like we created a, 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 a class that's like a lesser class for the people who are not vaccinated. And I know this is controversial, but when the whole thing started with the vaccine and things like that, I said to a lot of my friends, this is gonna be the yellow star. The vaccine status is gonna become a yellow star. And that's kind of what it has become. If you're not vaccinated, it's almost as if you have the yellow star like they had in Nazi Germany. Tell me about these codes. You started talking about new codes that identify as someone, as someone as being unvaccinated. And there's, I think there's some others, but why is this significant? How is this different from the past? So these new codes, there are several categories and 
you can be unvaccinated for uh, religious reasons. So if you have a religious exemption or for medical reasons like medical exemption, or you can just be uh, unvaccinated and they don't know the reason why you're not. We've never labeled something that's not the disease status. So this is not the disease status. This is just something that you don't, you're not vaccinated. So this will actually potentially contract someone that they uh, have not been vaccinated. But interestingly, we don't have a code for vaccinated. Hmm. So um, there is a concern that this can be used for whatever reasons. And in the past, like if you are not vaccinated for MMR or for hepatitis B, we don't have a code to say you're not vaccinated for MMR or hepatitis B. But for this one, we do. We've done everything different with this one. You're talking about with these the, genetic COVID yes. vaccines? Yes. Right. But so what are the implications of that? So you're saying this is sort of never before in history have we put codes on a non-disease? I don't think anyone knows what the implications are. We can speculate, but I don't think anyone truly knows why they're there. If I wanted to speculate, I can say that they can be tracked. So for whatever reason, I can know that you, someone else, or this person chosen not to be vaccinated. If you want to go further, let's say later on we have digital um, social scoring that can be brought into that. So it's hard to tell what's the purpose of it. It's well, just you, something we haven't done. You're talking about that this could some this could be part of a social credit system which some basically kind of tracking system. discriminates based on this your status. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here we are. A lot of people are saying are ready to move on from the pandemic, right? There's a lot of actually there's many of these emergency restrictions which have been up to now are apparently coming to an end. I haven't seen it yet in many cases, but supposed to be. Um, what, what, what's the next steps for society? What do we need to do here from your viewpoint? I'm not sure. In a sense, I think about it a lot. Um, they talk about Marburg virus now. Uh, they talked about Ebola recently. And I do think an avian flu, right, that's been in the news. I think they're still trying to figure out how to keep on going. They're creating a lot of new uh, vaccines on the same mRNA platform. From everything we've seen, that's the platform we should not use. We have way too many people who are injured, people that passed away, way too many questions with this. Um, during these past three years, they've taken a lot of our freedoms away, some that we don't even realize. And I don't think they're going to give them up. You know, they're not just going to say, hey, you can have this back. Um, so I do think that as a what, world... What, why? Why not? Why not? Once government takes something away, they just don't give it back because... Uh, but the government is, is us, isn't it? You know. I used to think so. Mm -hmm. um, let's just say that not every 
both seems to be equal where you live. So um, I want to believe in the system, and part of me still does. But I'm not sure that we'll ever get back to normal, whatever that normal is. I think this is our new reality. But I think it's time for people to get more involved in their own communities. You know, I don't think we can influence too much what's happening in D.C. Um, we, we've all seen, you know, the votes that are coming out and all that. There's too much partisanship and um, too many squabbles there. So I think the best thing to do is get involved in your own community with your family, with churches, with school, uh, run for offices and make influences locally. If we don't do that, we will lose this country completely because um, they like to say we're doing this for your own good. But, what, you know, if, a lot of places talk about um, the income, uh, you know, the guarantee income and things like that. Sure, but once you start go, getting into these programs, you're going to have to do these things to get that. So, um, right, so you're talking about universal basic income and you're yeah, saying that, well, but things. if you want that, you're going to need to get well, your Well, that, that code right, from, right. you know, we talked about before could yeah. be used for that. Right. Well, you have this code, so you can't get this amount of money, you can only get that amount of money. When you have someone else deciding what you can and cannot have, that's when you stop, you really don't have any more freedom. As we've discussed, there's been a lot of trust lost in the medical system. I don't know if everyone is going to be, you know, saying the oath of medicus, uh, mm -hmm. as, you, as you described. But so for the typical person who's struggling out there who might be struggling with this, like how do I, 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 maybe I need medical help, I don't know, can I really trust my doctor? What do you, what do you say to them? When you go to fix your car, right, you kind of find the best mechanic around, you ask your neighbors, you get the, you know, recommendations, you decide the price, how much you can pay, same thing. Don't just go to anyone, interview your doctor. Decide if you share the same values. And if you don't, don't go. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really that simple. The problem is we've, we've elevated medicine to this different status than the rest of the world that, uh, you know, people used to um, almost worship their doctors. But doctors were normal people, you know. Someone might like me, someone might hate me. And uh, you just have to do the same thing. You choose who your physician is going to be because your physician is supposed to partner with you when it comes to your health. I always tell my patients, I can lead you to water, I can make you drink, and I don't want to make you drink. You know, I have five kids, I don't need another child. And that's the type of a, a relationship you want to, you want to have a friend in your physician. So find someone you trust. Well, Dr. Catlin Lee, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Dr. Kat Lindley and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick. Mm -hmm.